I'll invite you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16 today. Just while you're flipping there, I'm sure we can probably agree there are plenty of times where it would be nice to just simply be done with this world. Just be done with all the hassle that comes with this world. Be done with the battle that it is. Uh, There's a great weariness, I'm sure you realize, at times as, as a Christian. The battle is very real. Uh, daily trying to take up your cross and follow after the Lord in the midst of hostility. And even when things are going relatively well and the people around you treat you generally fairly decently, still the world is not a friendly place to the Lord and to his people. And of course, we battle with our own flesh and everywhere we turn, there's great difficulty and it can be very exhausting. And when we see the frustrations of the world around us, there's all the more desire often to just completely remove ourselves and have nothing to do with others around us. And there have been times when Christians, for various reasons throughout history, have sought to withdraw from society. Uh, One such example would be monasticism, but there's various ways that Christians have done this. And even in the days of the New Testament, in the time of the Apostle Paul, he had to bring some correction about this, to clarify this very matter. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's dealing with this immoral brother, this very messed up situation, and he says to the people, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying... No, believers can't leave this world. We have to remain here and interact with unbelievers, which necessitates that we're going to have some interaction with idolaters and those who are immoral in various ways. We, we, but we don't get to leave the world. He's quite clear about that. And so even though it may be difficult, although as believers we are certainly distinct from the world, as we will see today, We are nevertheless still in it. We are still here. Though it can be difficult to live in a fallen world as God's people, even, as we saw last time, persecution can come our way. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians is very much in keeping with what we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We have seen that disciples of Christ are those who are characterized by certain things. Poverty of spirit, hunger and thirst for righteousness, peacemaking, mourning our sin and the sin of others around us, and so on. And these differences come from a renewed character. And this is something that makes believers different from the world. This new birth, this new character that arises from being born again, from having a new heart. And so having described these characteristics of Uh, disciples, having described what it is that Christians are, we now move, the Lord moves us now into looking at the role that individual disciples have within society at large. And we see that we cannot come out of this world as we have a function 
to perform within it. We are different than the world, but we do not get to leave it all behind. And the role that Christians have to play in this fallen world is described in these words of our Lord with these two words, really, salt and light, being salt and light. So let's read verses 13 to 16 together. Jesus, speaking of disciples, says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as we look at the Christian's function in the world, there's just two points to the outline today. Nothing terribly clever. The first point is you are the salt of the earth. And the second, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So the first one, you are the salt of the earth. This is how verse 13 begins, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there were, there were two main functions for salt in the ancient world. It was used for flavoring food, but more commonly, maybe most common use, was that it was used for preserving meat, for delaying putrefaction, for, for uh, preventing its rottenness, at least for a time. It delays that. But as we consider the picture that Jesus is giving us here of the Christian, using this language of salt, this imagery of salt, it is important to note what I think many rightly point out, that Jesus is not just making a statement about believers here, but he is also making a statement about the world. This is revealing to us that the world is in fact in a state of decay. And of course, this is precisely what we find taught all throughout the Bible. We understand that the world is under the curse of God on account of sinfulness. Mankind is infected with this disease of a sinful nature, and it is out of that sinful nature, that sinful heart, that various types of sins, all manner of sins, are performed. We know that nature, creation itself, is subjected to this curse as well. And so we find disasters that occur in nature as well. The world is indeed in a state of decay. One of the ways that this curse manifests itself is that mankind is blinded to this reality of the fact that we are in a state of decay, at least blinded to the true reason for it. Man suppresses this truth about God. Instead, man is quite willing to acknowledge and quick to proclaim his own goodness. But indeed, the scriptures declare rightly in Romans 3 that nobody does good, not one. No one is righteous. Now, Jesus wrote this or spoke these words, I should say, a couple of thousand years ago. And yet, if we consider our own day today, we can see this decay 
is still the case. We can see this rottenness on display. In our time, we live when it is virtuous to be a so-called progressive here in the Western world. It is thought by many of these folks that if we would abandon virtually all that is old, including any sense of Christianity, any sense of Christian heritage or roots, if we abandon those things, it will move us into a new and better and really a more just society. And yet, as our thought leaders and elites, along with many of our neighbors, many of the populace, as they do this, as they have suppressed the truth of God's existence, they've been working toward this agenda of throwing off all of Christianity and any of its implications and influence in society. Ironically, the decay and the rottenness only becomes more apparent. We are at a point now where seemingly very intelligent people cannot, or probably more appropriate to say they will not, they will not give a definition of what a woman is. The active rebellion against nature, that is against what is plainly revealed to all in creation about male and female, is being rejected. And it's wreaking havoc. It's wreaking further damage and pain all around us. There's tremendous confusion about these things. Having abandoned the truth about God, we don't understand what it means to be a human being. We don't understand what a human's purpose is, nor what constitutes a good life. We're told it's perfectly acceptable to just live your life on a phone. Live online, as if that's just the next phase of human evolution. Just create online personas and then be that person. Think of the possibilities of what you could be. Indeed, many go so far as to even espouse a transhumanism in which technological advances will, so they say, blend seamlessly with humanity to enhance the human condition, really with no respect for our Creator and His definition of life and what it means to be a human being, to be an image bearer of God. Rather than see the earth as God's creation that is meant to be responsibly inhabited and subdued, many today worship it and are more passionate about its preservation than life in the human womb. And I'll add more specifically, life in a woman's womb. In fact, with the recent threat, if you've been following the news, with the recent threat to the child sacrifice that is abortion in the United States, the rottenness of society on this matter has really reared its head as people protest emphatically, angrily, to protect this sacred right of progressivism. Meanwhile, here in our own country, our politicians move to further entrench this right of abortion.
If there's a plane or a helicopter, it'll be on a Sunday. We think in our time we're smarter than all those who've gone before us. This is what progressivism assumes. When in fact we are genetically devolving and we've simply given our thinking over to our devices, to the internet, to our phones. We don't even need to learn some very basic things anymore. We just store them in our phone and as long as we have that, we have access to it. And of course, even among those who may not, sorry, <clears throat> even among those who may not be on that progressive train, how many have had no objection to something like abortion? How many engage freely, sometimes even openly, in pornography? Our society marries and divorces almost as if it's nothing. The slide to where we are at didn't happen overnight. And it's not just amongst those who would be progressive or left. As we consider the sinfulness of our present world, we could go on. But my point simply is that what Jesus implies here about the world when he spoke these words has not changed. Again, we think we're better now than we used to be. That's an assumption amongst many. But we've not progressed beyond this state. The world is indeed in a state of death and decay on account of sin. And so it is that the Christian's function in the world is that of salt. Likewise, this is no less significant and important today. <clears throat> now, exactly what Jesus means by this analogy to salt can be a little bit tricky, but I think it's safe to say a few things. First of all, this reveals that disciples are distinct from the world. We are not the decaying and the putrid, but rather the salt that it is in and amongst the decay. And so we stand out. Disciples are different. Disciples live separate from the world, not completely removed from them, but still distinct from the world around us. And I would suggest that this is what Jesus has already been showing us in the Beatitudes. These characteristics, these traits of believers that do distinguish us from the world around us as those who are born again. We've come out of the world. We are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven and our lives reflect that. And this is essential for us to grasp because if disciples are not in some way distinct from the world around them, then really they're not true Christians. I think, again, that's already been implied in the Beatitudes. Disciples have a particular characteristic about them. And I think it's confirmed in what Jesus says here as we continue in verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt that loses its saltiness is no longer salt. Jesus is not 
of course, giving a chemistry lesson here. He's showing us that salt's purpose in that case, if such a thing can happen, salt's purpose would be gone. That it, what would be left now, whatever it is, is a useless substance. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments that there's nothing so useless in all the world as a professing Christian who bears no distinction from the world. Christians are distinct. This is a necessary outcome of the new birth, of being born again. Again, the Beatitudes, this is what we've seen. Christians believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not just an empty thing. Christians are those who've been born again and live lives now unto the Lord, who hunger for righteousness, who are merciful, are now peacemakers, and so on. So salt reveals that Christians are distinct from the world, Second, being salt reveals that the function of Christians in this world is one of delaying its rottenness and instead seasoning it with flavor. So on the negative side, disciples delay its decay. So in a world that is bent on descending into further and further decline and suppressing the truth about God and unrighteousness, Christians are those who are striving and pointing in the opposite direction. And so as we rub shoulders with the world, whether it's co-workers, neighbors, wherever it might be, as we speak the truth, as we point out the darkness, as we seek to live uprightly, it pricks the conscience of people. It instructs, and in some cases shames people. It doesn't let those around us completely forget what is good. Oftentimes, this acts as a restraint upon evil. Just as one possible example, a Christian's presence in a workplace can have the effect of silencing certain forms of speaking. Perhaps filth is no longer just openly engaged in, filthy talk, because of the presence of even one believer. I've had a particular experience a number of times where I meet somebody, start talking with them, and they are cursing like a sailor and whatnot, and then it comes out that I'm a pastor, and their eyes go big, their voice jumps an octave, and oh, and, and then and then they you you can see them feel embarrassed and they sometimes will even apologize for their, their language. And I know that happens to more than just pastors. And I think this is something of the delaying effect of being salt in the world. Human beings engage in evil, suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And what are the Lord's people doing? What do disciples do? We we speak the truth into the darkness and speak the truth into this decaying world. Likewise, if you think of the book of Genesis... Consider what the presence of even 10 righteous men would have done for Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, 32, God tells Abraham 
he would he would have spared the cities if if there were just 10 there's another type of preservation a withholding of judgment one of the reasons the end has not come yet is god is not done calling more people out of the sinful world and to himself there is a decay on a, a delay on account of god's people so this is kind of the negative view of salt. We delay rottenness, kind of hold it back. But I think it is also right to see the idea of seasoning and of flavor as well. Paul uses salt in that way in Colossians 4, 6, when he speaks of our language being seasoned with salt. We bring in an opposite life to the way of the world that seasons it, that gives it meaning. And I would suggest a measure of attractiveness course not everyone's going to notice it but some will and it remains true even if it is not appreciated by others think about the hopelessness of so much of the messaging that goes on in our day people try to cover the hopelessness but i don't think they're very well i don't think they're effective at all for example there is no god and we've evolved from basically nothing by accident and just dumb luck. I mean, say what you say what you want about that, but that's depressing. Right? That just guts life of any significant meaning. You are purely an accident. The thoughts you have, the emotions you have, that's just atoms and molecules and waves and that's it. I think it's right to press that with people as we have opportunity. Another message today, your sexuality is simply beyond your control. You just are what you are and you can't change it. In fact, if someone tries to change it, it's illegal now. You're stuck. Likewise, things like depression, alcoholism these are simply diseases it's just a disease and so maybe there's some medicine for you to help with it well that's not terribly hopeful either it's just a disease but losing the fear of god and preaching godlessness no matter how you try to dress it up must lead ultimately to despair. You cannot cast off the creator of all things and think it's going to go well. We see it over and over again in Scripture, and we're seeing it, we're watching it play out before our eyes with many around us. And the fact is, a Christian view of the world is far more compelling and far more wonderful. As lost as man is, as awful as the situation is, there is redemption in Christ Jesus. That's good news. There is purpose to life. Man is not, you are not just molecules and atoms that happen to come together. But each person is a created image bearer of God. There is joy to be known. There is right and wrong. And of course, there is eternal life, meaning that even death 
even death itself, is not simply a return to nothingness. The world will paint you, it paints disciples, Christians, as being killjoys, backwards, old and antiquated. The pro- one, part of the problem in society, if you stand in the way of what they believe is progression, But I would just encourage you, don't buy it. Don't believe it. It's not true. It's not true. There is, obviously, joy to be had in this world. There are good things to be received with thankfulness as we live to God. Even if you think about messages and teaching that are so despised in our day, whether it's what the Bible teaches about marriage, about God's design and plan for a husband and a wife and sexuality. Oh, this will get you labeled all kinds of things today. But it is truly good. I w- don't give in to the world. God decides. This is his world. In light of this declaration that disciples are salt of the earth, it's important to ask yourself if there is any distinction between you and those around you, or if it is merely a superficial thing. Do you just pursue all that the world does? Maybe you cherish sins that maybe others can't easily detect. Is there a hunger for righteousness. I think even for you kids who are young, as you start to grow up and look more at the world around you, the world is going to to call to you, to convince you that their way is better. That what your parents have taught you, what the scriptures say is boring is not true, and they will try to entice you. And I would just plead with you to understand that it's lying to you, that God's ways are good, that his word is true, and that God himself is the one who decides and determines what it is that is good and what it is that is bad. And you don't need the things of the world in order to be satisfied in this life. And of course, that's true for all of us. If you realize at some point, whether that's today or in years from now, that you're just simply worldly, that you're no different than the world around you, or that that difference is really just superficial in a few maybe minor external things, it ought to alarm you and be concerning to you. This is the point of the warning about losing saltiness. If there's no distinction, then you're useless. You're not salt. You're not Christian. The mere external professor of true religion is not the Christian. Your need is for a new heart. 
And so call out to God for that new heart. Again, kids, young people, we don't just want you to just show up to church and say, well, as long as I show up to church, then I'm heaven bound. The Lord's pleased with me. But the need for every person is to have a a new heart, to be made new within, to be born again is what the scriptures call that. That your desires might be changed, that the beatitudes that we've looked at are true of you, would describe you, that you understand your sinfulness before God. You're maybe not old and haven't lived many years and gotten into all kinds of horrific trouble out in the world. But even so, you know there's still sin in your heart as you disobey your parents. Sins in thought, word and deed, fighting with siblings and others. And one of the things a Christian marks a Christian, as we've seen, is being poor in spirit, recognizing that sin before God, calling him out to him for grace, for forgiveness, for that new heart. Perhaps as we look at this text and consider this concept of salt and being distinct from the world, as you listen to Jesus' words, you're faced with your own sinfulness and you do feel the weight of it, young or old. You do feel the weight of your sin. I would remind you again that poverty of spirit is a mark of a Christian. It's good that you would feel the weight of that sin. And I would remind you again, just confess that to the Lord. And remember Christ crucified for your sins and rest in his work. So again, this idea of being salt implies that we remain in the world, though we are yet distinct from it. So things like retreat, living as hermits, these are not options. And I know many times I think we become afraid of being a bad witness. We don't want to say or do the wrong thing. We're concerned about failing to be the purest of salt and the brightest of lights and we get paralyzed and we just don't even try. We don't even go out. We don't interact. It's easier to just not do that. I encourage you not to give in to that temptation, to not let let that keep you from engaging with others. So that's point one. We better move on though. Point number two, you are the light of the world. So you're the salt of the earth, and now we move on. You are the light of the world. Just as with the statement about salt, by calling disciples the light of the world, Jesus also makes a statement here about the world itself. Namely, that the world is in fact in darkness. Light signifies truth, purity, and life. Darkness represents ignorance, lies, impurity, sin and death it is a different metaphor than decay but it's not altogether different than what we've already been discussing and up against the darkness of this world believers are said to be light jesus says in verse 14 you are the light of the world now as you hear those words i wonder how many of you flinch that sounds too man-centered to come out of the lips of our Lord, to say that you, disciples, are the light of the world. 
Plus, we know the scriptures teach that Jesus is the true light that has entered into the world, that he is the light of the world. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we might wonder, which one is it? Jesus, I am the light of the world, or Jesus saying, you are the light of the world. How does this fit together? Well, of course, we affirm Jesus is the true light. Christ has come to reveal the Father, reveal the way of salvation, and to secure that salvation. And as John 8, 12 says, those who follow him, those who believe in Christ and become his disciples, are no longer in darkness, but have the light of life. And so believers... Having received the Holy Spirit, being born again, now possess the true light of life within ourselves. We are taken out of darkness and now are those living in the truth. We see more clearly and we understand the way of the world more accurately. And we are now, as Jesus says here, the light of the world, but... We are light in a derivative way. That is, we derive our light not from our own inherent goodness or something like that, but we derive it ultimately from Christ, who is the source. We are light more as the moon is light. The moon, of course, does not have light in and of itself, but reflects the light of the sun. That is more like what we are as we consider ourselves the light of the world. We are reflecting ultimately Christ. In John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says that those who believe in him are sons of light. In Ephesians 5, 17, believers are called children of light. And if you remember back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, it calls us to shine as lights in the world, even as we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse or twisted generation. Really the same concept as Jesus is getting at here. So as children of the light, we shine in the darkness by testifying to the truth, proclaiming Christ, speaking the truth in any and all occasions as we have opportunity, and practicing righteousness, living our lives to the Lord, pursuing holiness. This is shining in both word and deed in this world. And we do these things, we do this in whatever sphere of life that we happen to find ourselves in. Whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're enjoying our recreation, whether we're visiting with a neighbor, we're out in public, and obviously as we gather together as the Lord's people as well. And again, notice that light is not meant to be hidden. Jesus uses a couple of metaphors here to show this. The first is this city on a hill, verse 14. You are the light of the world, A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city that is elevated is going to be seen, especially if it's dark out and the lamps are burning, the lights are on. It can't be hidden in that case. In the same way, he's saying, disciples can't help but be seen, can't help but stand out. And then the second illustration returns to the lamp Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
Jesus speaks here of something that's really rather absurd to make his point. Obviously, of course, nobody goes through the hassle of lighting this oil-burning lamp just to then cover it up right away, just to put it under something. That, that's absurd. That doesn't make any sense. The waste of the oil. Why do we turn lights on? Why do would we turn on a lamp so it can be so things can be seen? So that it might be to the benefit of those who are in the house, to benefit from that light. Verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. Disciples are those who are saved and are born again, made new, so that we might shine. Worshiping God rightly, walking before Him in holiness, and in so doing, testifying to the dark world around us. Nobody lights a lamp to simply cover it up. Nor does God save sinners and regenerate them and give them His Holy Spirit only to hide the effect of this. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, many point out that the word you is emphatic. That is, the way it is worded and ordered in the Greek is stressing you, as if the point is you and you only are the light of the world. If Christians don't shine, who is going to? Again, if salt is not salty, then what? And so we're reminded again here, progressives are not the light. Apple, Google, whatever else, the metaverse, whatever's going on, they're not going to be light. They're not going to show us the way. And so amazingly, as weak and as inadequate as you perhaps feel, it is uniquely for Christians to serve this function in the world of being salt and being light. There is a command here. Jesus says, let your light shine before men or before others, as the ESV says. So Jesus says, you are the light and then let your light shine. What he's saying is don't hide from the world, but let yourself be seen. Don't shrink back from speaking the truth, from doing what is righteous wherever you go. Christians are to be a city on a hill not a city tucked away in the jungle. In Ephesians chapter 5, which we read earlier, we get further help about what it means to be light or what it means to let your light shine. I'm just going to read some of that again. Verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Notice that. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This would include things like evangelism. We proclaim the true light who has come into the world. This would include then living uprightly, seeking to give glory to our Lord. 
dealing with others honestly, asking forgiveness of those around us when we sin, not hiding who we are in Christ, and so on. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Verse 10 continues, Ephesians 5.10, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So this text includes both good deeds and good words as part of the light. And words include exposing darkness. And in light of what verse 14 says, there is an exposing of darkness so as to also proclaim Christ. Verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In verse 16, the goal of letting your light shine is so that they, that is talking about the world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is undeniable that the good works that Christians perform in the world are part of our witness. They're part of our testimony. However, as is clear here, it's not about us ultimately. If the world is to glorify God and to glorify Him truly, then His people must be expressly giving Him glory and pointing others to Him. And evangelism, certainly, gospel proclamation is going to be part of all of this, a significant part of it. As we think about letting others see our good works, There's a challenge that arises with this when we think about what Jesus will say later in this very Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 and verse 1. There he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. And that might seem like the opposite of let your light light shine before men, before all men, so they might see your good works. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others. Let your light shine before all men. But the difference, of course, is in the purpose and intent. Chapter 6, when he says beware, is referring to hypocritical and external displays of piety that are meant to get us noticed. He says, beware of these practicing righteousness in front of men in order to be seen by others. And here in chapter 5, it talks of shining our lights before others so that ultimately they don't approve of us, but they will give glory to God. Now the difference between those two things might be hard at times to discern in our own hearts. Often there is much mixture. But there is a world of difference between those two attitudes between those two ways of letting your light shine. As we think about letting light shine, and about being salt, I think there are really thousands, I don't know, unending ways that this could be applied. 
And one concern I would have is that we might overcomplicate what Jesus is getting at here. We might wonder, does this talk about evangelism? Is this talking about my good actions? Uh, do I need to share the, the, the entirety of the gospel and do a righteous deed and then vocally give glory to God for all of that every time in order for this kind of obedience to have occurred? Well, I would just say that what Jesus is giving here is a general instruction. If we zoom out for a second, disciples are those who are distinct from the world, children of the truth, who live in this world by walking in the light of his word, seeking to be righteous wherever we are and taking opportunities to evangelize, speaking the truth wherever we have opportunity. And in these ways and, and more, we live out what Jesus is talking about here. So if you go out and evangelize, you're being light and salt. If you speak up at work when someone is parroting lies of the world, you're being light. If you refuse to cheat or lie when others encourage you to, you're being light. If you do all that and share the gospel, you're, you're being light. When you explain to your children the world around them and seek to teach them the scriptures, you're being light. When you go to somebody, a neighbor, a co-worker, whoever, and ask their forgiveness for wrong you've done, even be it something small, you're being light. When you tell your boss you don't want to work on Sunday because you need to be with the Lord's people, worshiping, it's being light. Again, Ephesians 5, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And I will just add that, of course, as we think about the world, we will find unbelievers who will speak of Speak truly about things. You might have much agreement even with some unbelievers on certain matters. And yet again, such a person is not going to be speaking and doing the things they do so as to ultimately give glory to God. So I think this is again where we are reminded of the importance of two things. One is expressly giving glory to the Lord as we have opportunity and being vocal about <clears throat> why we do the things we do and about our ultimate concerns about humanity. And again, with it, the proclamation of Christ and the importance of evangelism. This is very unique to the church to Christians alone to evangelize. And so there's lots of ways to do this. You can get involved in concerns that are close to your heart in this world and try to be a voice of reason and light. You might even be standing beside someone who's not even a believer who might agree with you on some of those issues. And yet remember there too, you have opportunity with those people beside you to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ.
such as you are able. And all of that together would be, I think, in, in obedience to this text, evidence of salt and light. The key here in these words of our Lord, I think, is that true Christian religion does not consist in words only. Nor as we know, as we know, nor is it a religion of action only. But there is a message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is a lifestyle that line up together. I said at the beginning of our series on the Sermon on the Mount that there was going to be many places where this series would needle us, would bring conviction to us. And I suspect even just reading the words of our Lord here that this is probably the case for, for many of us now. But we can all think of times when we fail. We fail to be salty. We fail to be light. We can all point to areas where we need to grow in these things. Whether it's courage to speak up more and more overtly maybe about the Lord about Christ, maybe more bold in our evangelism. Or maybe it's the need to speak less in some cases. To walk more circumspectly before outsiders. Whatever it may be. So if you feel the weight of your sin, and I know there's tender consciences here, I would encourage you again to remember the message that we proclaim. The good news. That the true light has come into the world. And that though the world did not know him, and in fact rejected him, to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he has given the right to become the children of God. That God saves not as a result of your works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and grace. That it is Christ who has perfectly satisfied God's wrath on your behalf for your sins. That he makes peace between you and God. And that it is finished on account of what he has done. That his offering of himself, perfect as it was, is sufficient for your justification, for your pardon and for your being accounted righteous. And this is your gift from God received by faith, not by your perfect saltiness. And so again, rest here in the work of your Lord. Confess your sins to God as often as you know of them and rest in this work that he has performed. And I would encourage you to let your failures to be salt and light fuel your desire to press on to be one who makes much of Christ, who does seek to share the good news and give glory to God for any and every good thing that you might do and accomplish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again for your mercies. And God, we confess that we do fall short of your glory and as we consider here being salt and light, Father, your word is clear that we 
that your people are, are new creatures in Christ, are born again, and yet perfection is not yet ours in our practice. And this is grievous to your people. We do grieve this. We are ashamed of our sinfulness. We are ashamed that we don't testify to you in a more holy way. And yet, Father, we obviously see that this is, for whatever reason, your plan to use us earthen vessels to proclaim the goodness of Christ and to be salt and light in this dark and dying world. Father, we thank you that precisely because of this reality of darkness and death and decay, Paul taught us that the, you taught us through your word in Romans 3 that it is the gospel of Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. So we thank you for that. I pray that you would help us. Help us to be those that open our mouths to speak, to be unashamed of that gospel. Father, help us to not fear man. Help us to not care if they think we're silly and just dismiss us, or even if they revile us outwardly. Father, we've seen again last week your pronouncement of blessing upon your people when we are treated in that way. Father, we pray f for forgiveness. We thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for your promise that you're not done with your people, but that you will bring to completion the work that you begin. Father, give us hopefulness. I pray that you would give us foreheads of flint, that we might not be deterred, that we might not cow in the face of evil or threats. May we count everything as loss compared to the glory of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and be unafraid to suffer the reproach of Christ should it come to us. Father, we pray that many more would yet come to know you in our own town and across our province and country. Father, even now as people are awakening to some of the lies that are out there in the world, and yet still are adrift and not moored to the truth of your word, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that everywhere you have your people, that they would be speaking the truth of Christ. Father, I thank you for all the faithfulness, the times when people that are here now, that your people have shared the gospel with others, and even in much weakness have sought to, to do that, even when we've stumbled and done what we feel is a poor job. I thank you for moving in people to be concerned for others. Father, renew us in our commitment to that. Help us to be those who long for righteousness, who long to walk uprightly before you and before man. And ultimately, may we point to you, 
the reason why we would do these things. Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this time, and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.